Welcome to Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast, field interviews with the best in bluegrass. From the Johnson Mountain Boys to Longview and the seldom seen, Dudley Connell is one of the most identifiable and beloved voices in bluegrass. Today on Episode 3 of Walls of Time Season 2, Daniel Mullen sits down with this charismatic performer and an old camper parked backstage at the Sam Jam Bluegrass Festival in Piketon, Ohio. They talk about Dudley's journey from first getting hooked on the traditional bluegrass sound to how he helped develop and change the music through the years by bringing it to new listeners and making new songs, classics of the genre. Dudley also talks about his important role in preserving historic roots music recordings in our nation's capital. Sit back and enjoy episode three of the second season of the Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast. Now, Dudley, uh, when did the bluegrass bug first bite you? Well, Daniel, I'll tell you, it's a little bit complicated. You got a second? Oh, yeah. We got all the time (laughs) in the world. Well, when I was a kid, my parents used to listen to country music, and they used to Mm -hmm. listen to a radio station called WDON. They were in Wheaton, Maryland, which is a a suburb of Washington, D.C., and there was a guy there that you may be familiar with. His name was Tomcat Reader. And another guy that was there was Gary Henderson. And Gary was a big bluegrass aficionado. So he'd slip in he'd slip in the Stanley Brothers right there with Buck Owens and Ray Price and Carl Smith and people like that. So it was in my head. And then when I started to discover, when I discovered my parents' record collection, my dad was a big fan of Reno and Smiley. So he had maybe a half a dozen of their records two or three Stanley Brothers records. So I, 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 I guess I could say that I grew up with it, but I abandoned it. And, and probably when I was about, I don't know, 10 or so, I, I discovered like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and, and the Kinks and all these bands that, uh, that were playing on the Ed Sullivan show and things like that. And so I kind of lost track of bluegrass and I listened to more like blues rock, like Johnny Winter and uh, Cream and Jimi Hendrix and stuff like that. But sometime in the early 80s, they, that music really changed. That era sort of passed by, and what it was, what it was replaced by was, uh, was uh, like disco. And I have nothing against disco, but for me personally, it didn't move me emotionally. It felt overproduced, and and it was it was dance music, and I can't dance. <laughs> so, so I I, I I sort of I started leaning into uh, people like Bob Dylan and John Prine and uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, and Neil Young on his own, Joni Mitchell, people like that. And it's not really that far of a step. To, to bluegrass. I mean, I, I remember Neil Young, on at least two of his records in the 70s, he had this plunky kind of banjo in there. And I thought, I recognize that. I know what that is. I recognize that sound. And my dad played banjo. So I started really getting into it. But I, I, I wasn't like regular kids i mean well i'm I'm still i'm still not frankly but but i i didn't listen to uh the seldom seen or the country gentleman or the osborne brothers until much later and i liked 
the hardcore stuff and it was maybe because i was coming out of this hardcore rock world i like the stanley brothers and and red allen and the sort of like beat you over the head with it kind of blue you know what i mean sledgehammer bluegrass and 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 it wasn't until and it wasn't until i'd played for a while that i that i started listening to some of the more sophisticated uh Stanley's sophisticated too but you know what I mean some of the more contemporary uh, arrangements of material and like the scene more elegant almost yeah yeah yeah, cosmopolitan almost yeah there we go but it was funny you know uh, the scene were on the radio all the time and in the 70s there was a woman there Katie Daly I bet you know Katie 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 was a huge proponent of the of the of the seldom scene and played them all the time and when, after the Johnson Mountain Boys broke up, I was kind of a rudderless for a while. I played some music with uh, Hazel Dickens, and I played some music with Larry Stevenson, and just, you know, sort of a freelance kind of thing. And uh, I play a show at Larry Stevenson at Luckett's Community Center, and uh, and Katie, and Kitsy Kikendall, Pete's wife, approached me. She said, this was at, at, at the era where John Starling was leaving for the second time. He'd come back for yeah. a year or so, recorded an album, and and she said, you really ought to consider uh, uh, auditioning for the scene job. And I thought, that's crazy. I, I, I don't know how to sing that stuff. I'm, I don't even know their stuff except for what I've heard on the radio. But it stuck in my head. And... Um, and so, but then I didn't, I didn't, I didn't audition. Moondy Klein took the job. And, and so he played with him for a while. And uh, when I heard that he was leaving, that's when I approached John. And I really wasn't looking for a job with the scene. I just, I like John personally. Duffy, right? D- John Duffy. And I admired his, his singing and his playing and his, and his attitude is sort of cocky, you know, bigger than life persona. So I was actually a little intimidated by it. Really? But I called him and he was so nice. And I said, John, you know, I'm sorry to hear about the scene breaking up. And he goes, oh, no, we're not breaking up, really. We're just looking for a lead singer, guitar player, bass player, bass singer, dobro player, baritone, you know, (laughs) in his own, in his John Duffy way. You know, his his kind of tongue-in-cheek humor. And I said, well, John, we ought to get together and sing sometime. No thought of it being an audition. And there was silence on the other end of the phone. And I thought, Jesus, I've stepped over some proverbial line here that I didn't know existed. But he said, well, he said, do you know any of our material? I said, nothing by heart, but I've listened to, I've heard you on the radio for years. He said, I'd just like to sing with you. So he invited me over. And so it was me, and he had also invited Ronnie and Fred, because he knew Fred, because Fred's really, he's hes the uh, seldom seen archivist. He knows all the records inside and out, because he was a big disciple of uh, uh, Mike Aldridge. Absolutely. And you could tell it in his plan. Absolutely. He's got his own lick, but you could tell that, that he was influenced, especially early on. And uh, it, it was fun. And I'll tell you what was really interesting is that we did like a half a dozen songs, and then John said, do something of yours, and let me see if I could sing to that. And the Blue Diamond record was had come out not too long before that, and he'd heard it on the radio, and he said, how about that one? And I said, okay. And so he started singing harmony to it, and I said, you know, John, that's I usually do that as a solo. He said, why do a solo when you have harmony on it? And I thought... <laughs> 
okay, I get that. I get, I get that. That's fine. And uh, and I don't know. It was it was it wasn't like we like we worked for each other. It was like we were a camaraderie. You know, it yeah. was it was a shared experience, and it still is. The band's still like that. There's no there's no boss per, per se. We've it's it's a real democracy. Yeah. Whether we accept when we're accepting dates or picking material and who's going to sing what and what key and all that kind of stuff, we just figure it out as we go. Ironic that the true democracy in the D.C. area isn't getting Congress or the White House; it's the seldom seen, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, well, I think maybe we ought to avoid talking about that. <laughs> oh, I've heard you talk before about what a life-changing experience it was when you attended your first bluegrass festival. Oh God. God, I jumped all over that. I jumped right over top of that. My my come to Jesus and, <laughs> and bluegrass was a. Uh, I I I'd, I'd learned about. I was I was uh, I was in bed. In a, it's I'd spent in the night at a friend's house, and I heard somebody playing a banjo out out the bedroom window. So I I just got on my clothes. It was probably eleven o'clock at night. And I went over through a couple of yards and knocked on this guy's door. He he probably thought I was nuts. And I said, man, I love the sound of the banjo. He said, well, come on in. And we sat and we chatted and he played the banjo for me. And he gave me a copy of Bluegrass Unlimited magazine, which I'd never seen before. I never even knew it existed. And And I start, you know, I just went over it like it was the Bible, you know. And there was an ad for Ralph Stanley, who was my favorite at the time. Still is in many ways one of the most influential guys for me, and he uh, and there was a festival in McClure, and so me and me and my girlfriend and uh, and a guy I was playing a little bit of music with and his girlfriend we made the trek down to McClure, which is really in the mountains. Have you ever been there? Yeah, I've been one time. It is, you know, you go to get lost and then make a left. I mean, it yes. is in the middle of nowhere. It totally isn't. And I swear to God, this is this is a God's honest truth. We're driving. We've been driving all day. And we're driving. We're driving up these dirt roads because I'm looking at the map here, and you know we're driving up this mountain. There's no GPS back then. No, no, <laughs> no, no. And there's cars off the bank, you know, where people run down into the woods. And I was thinking it can't be nothing up here. And I got to the got to the top of this one hill, and I I, I, I could see it just like it was yesterday. There was a. Um, like a string of these yellow bug lights, you know, yeah. strung across the, the road. And I thought, well, there's got to be something here. And here, and <laughs> there's I There's electricity, so there's got to be something. Exactly, exactly, <laughs> Daniel. So we, we pull in, and there's this old man in this little ticket booth. You know, he's got bib overalls on and a chaw tobacco, and, you know, we paid to get in. And uh, and just about the time this this almost makes me tear up just thinking about it. It was so meaningful to me. We pulled through the gates and it's late. We'd been on the road all day and it was getting late at night. And up through this holler, because back in the old days when the stage was down in this little bottom holler, and uh, and it was Ralph singing "Man of Constant Sorrow," and I thought. Holy cow! I have reached Nirvana, <laughs> and I I just jumped out of the car and just left them in the car. I just went down to the 
I, I don't I think I don't think I ate anything all weekend. I just sat there in front of that stage and the lineup was people like uh the Goins brothers, Bill Monroe, Lester Flat, Marshall family. I'm just thinking of the law the Wilson brothers, all these sort of like Stanley esque and real traditional things, and that was it. That that was it. I that's that's what I that's what I wanted to do. What about that hardcore uh mountain style bluegrass music spoke to you on just a whole other level it did it hit me it hit me in the heart it hit me on emotional level and i've always been one that i i so appreciate technicality in music i i really but i i i i almost i love it like I love algebra. I love it because it works and it's and it's intricate. It's smart, but it doesn't. That type of thing doesn't get under my skin like the Stanley Brothers. And I don't care if they're out of tune. It to me, it just it just moves me, you know. And I and I that and I learned to sing, listening to that kind of stuff, and it and it influenced me heavily, especially in the Johnson Mountain Boy days. And but you know at some point Daniel, I kind of started to feel like, well if if I want to do this for a living, I can't be a Stanley Brothers clone. We can't. But we were in the early days. I run across a bunch of old tapes, and you know through two thirds of the sets Stanley Brothers material. Women love men who care about their hair, and nothing makes a man's hair look better than Samson's hair care. Hi, I'm Santana Bell, and let me tell you, Daniel Mullins' hair was a mess before he started using Samson's. Trust me, I'm his girlfriend, but Samson's has made a world of difference. It holds all day. Even after a day of riding roller coasters, his hair still looked great. I couldn't believe it. But even with the all-day hold, I could still easily run my fingers through his hair without it feeling stiff or greasy. But the best part is the smell. It's not overpowering powering, but it gives off a distinctive, pleasant aroma that lasts all day. Honestly, a man could stop wearing cologne as long as he wore Samson's. It smells that good. Head to samsonshaircare.com to get some hair pomade for the man in your life. Neither of you will be disappointed. Use code bluegrass at checkout to save 10%. That's samsonshaircare.com, code bluegrass to receive 10% off. samsonshaircare.com, code bluegrass. What was it like for you to find some other people your age that were as ate up with the Stanley Brothers as you were? It's absolutely nuts. I mean, it's something to happen where the stars lined up. I'll tell you how I met David McLaughlin. He was the first one that got into this with me. And I met him. I, I, I could date it. I can't tell you the year, but it could be dated easily. Jimmy Carter was being inaugurated and and he'd had ralph come up to play for his one of his events and and ralph being ralph he picked up a side job to make a little money <laughs> so he was playing at the red fox inn and at the at the time that he did that it, it was the keith whitley days so it was keith whitley jack cook curly ray klein and and ralph hell, hell of a band That's powerful stuff yeah, right it was there. really great and and uh, so i decided to go and so I got there four hours early because I wanted to sit 
right where he was going to be playing the banjo because I wanted to watch him play. But you know who was there before me? Dave McLaughlin. <laughs> and and so we struck up a conversation. Nothing says kindred spirit like showing up to a Ralph Stanley concert four hours early. I know, right? <laughs> I know. It was that important to me. And and so Dave and I, we were the only people in there. Yeah. So, so we just struck up a conversation and a friendship. And that still lasts to this day. But we exchanged phone numbers and, you know, and uh, uh, that kind of thing. And um, we got together at a, at a, it was like a, like a, a schoolhouse show with Lester Flat and a couple of other acts. I think the Osbournes might have been there. But uh, afterwards, we went out in the parking lot and he brought a mandolin and a fiddle and I brought a banjo and a guitar. And, uh, and we just started playing music, and it just worked. He knew all the st- same songs I knew, and you know, I was a I was pretty deep into the Stanley catalog, ca- catalog at that point, and so was he. So, uh, so we started a, a relationship, and then uh, that lasted forever. You know, it was last well, not forever yet. I'm not dead yet, <laughs> but you know what you know what I mean. So. That's that's kind of that's that was the nucleus of the of the Johnson Mountain Boys really, and then we met Eddie at a at a he was playing with Buzz Busby at this uh, at this fair Montgomery County Fairgrounds, and he's he was tall and skinny and he had the hat and he had the string tie and I thought you know that would be a good fiddler for us, yeah. and <laughs> that's my kind of man. Yeah, right? That's right. There he is. <laughs> And and so I approached him, but he was still in school, and his dad wouldn't let him wouldn't let him go out, you know, to play because we were only only thing in D.C. for us to play. And those days were bars, and most of them weren't very nice, to be completely honest with you. And uh, and but his dad would let him come out and play a set, and then and then he'd take him home. I I. I I don't know what your editing is on 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 a podcast, but I I I have to tell you what. And Eddie, every week it'd be the same thing. He said, "Would you go talk to my dad and see if see if I could stay another set?" Because he couldn't drive at the time. I said, "Well, I, I, I sure I'll go ask, and I can bring you home." And I go over to Mr. Stubbs and say, uh, "Mr. Stubbs, uh, do you think Eddie could stay for one more set? I'll bring him home. You could go on." And he goes, "Damn it." I knew this was going to happen. This happens every time. And he said exactly the same thing every week. <laughs> every week. <laughs> every week. But Eddie loved it, you know. I mean, it, it was funny because Eddie brought something else to the band, uh, uh, youthful energy. I mean, we were all young. But he had this, you know, he had this Scotty Stolman thing going where he would twist and turn on the stage, and the audiences just loved him. And, and, so, and, and he also brought... Uh, the Flat and Scruggs influence in the band because that was like my dad's favorite band was Reno and Smiley. My favorite band was the Stanley Brothers, and Eddie's favorite band was Flat and Scruggs. So those all got kind of jammed in there. Yeah, and yeah. And, uh, and Eddie also loved old country music, and oh, yeah. and so we started, you know, recording like uh, Ray Price songs and yeah. and Don't You Tell Me Baby Why, you know that kind of stuff, and. Uh, you know, all the parts just matched, and unbelievably, we were all from like fifty miles from each other. They loved all this kind of stuff, yeah. and and that just doesn't happen. No. You know, I mean, that was just that's a total fluke. But uh, the band was together a long time. You know, I think we started playing like open mics and things like that, in around seventy four, seventy five. 
And I know that to be a fact because I've been transferring these old reel-to-reels that I've had for years and years. And it's funny to listen to that stuff now. That it actually, uh, you know, the here here where we were, what we were trying to do, we were trying to be uh, Stanley Brother Juniors, you know. <laughs> but you know, you we had to do that. And uh, I, I I know I, I was telling you a story, and I got off track. Uh, at some point, I realized that we couldn't be a Stanley clone if, if we ever hoped to establish any kind of name for ourselves. Yeah. And we weren't looking to play professionally, but I didn't want to be a copy either. So I, I started writing, and I, and, I, and I wrote a lot, and I tried to write. Well, it, it, I didn't even have to try. All I was listening to was that kind of music, so the writing that I was doing sounded like... It naturally fell yeah, into that camp. Yeah, okay. it fell into that camp because that's what I was listening to. That was my influence. But I think when we started introducing our own material is when people started to pay attention. You know, and Rounder, Rounder picked us up, and I guess we did that first record in probably, I don't know, 79, something like that. What was the, the first time where something you wrote, you saw it make an impact on somebody probably weathered gray stone really yeah and, and I'd, I'd written some stuff on the first album but it, it wasn't that good my writing got better as i as i you know as i as i built the craft yeah and so weathered gray stone was probably the first thing that i wrote that people started requesting and i thought hey maybe i'm on to something here you know yeah. so so that that just encouraged me to write more so yeah so the the kind of goal was the for me personally and and the band gratefully thankfully went along with it is it is it um you know I'd, I'd write about half the album and the rest we'd look for uh obscure covers we we quit recording stanley brothers songs we started looking for old like i said webb pierce ray price yeah. you know that kind of stuff so our 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 circle started to broaden and we had a good run. Absolutely. You know, we had a good run and, and I, and I tell you the truth, we were working so much and, and actually making so little financially that it probably ended up breaking up the band because what happened was for us to earn a living where we lived in the Washington DC area, which is expensive, we had to be on the road all the time. And we, and in the meantime, we started having kids and we started buying homes and, you know, had a dog, Life. had, yeah. had a dog to feed, you know, <laughs> So and eventually, I think I think it was almost too much too much strain to be away. I'll tell you tell you a story that I I don't know that I've ever told before. Is uh, we were touring England. We were out there for a week and a half, two weeks, and since since money was so tight, I called home twice. I called once a week, and and in, and I. And my this my ex wife Patty and my daughter who's now thirty three had started to walk while I was wow. on that trip, and I thought, wow, you know, I'm seeing the world and I'm meeting all these interesting people, but I'm really missing the boat of the stuff that's the most important, like watching your child take their first steps. I missed it, and it was then that I started thinking. Maybe it's time for me to go back to school. Maybe it's time for me to try to, you know, get a straight job. 
and and I did for a pretty good while. And you got a heck of a straight job. I do. Um, tell me, uh, tell us more about uh, your job and how it's so fascinating to me. Some of the unique insight and uh, unique uh, artifacts that you're kind of privy to with your job. All right. Um, in nineteen, I, t- I was telling you that I, I got off the road in '88. And then I kept getting lured back in in various ways. Hazel was one of my one one of the people who brought me out, and um, we were supposed to take a trip to Russia with a, was at the time it was the Soviet Union for a for a world folk festival, and we um, and and Hazel decided not to go because her her health was sort of a little funky, and she was worried about getting over there and getting sick and not getting the not being around her doctors and and so uh and I was in the backup band so i so they asked me if i would if I would take a band so I got Tom Adams and um jeez uh Blaine Sprouse went and marshall it was a really it was a pretty good band and and i and I got to meet these sort of uh folky people from from the it was called uh, f- f- the cultural center for folk life studies or something like that they put on the the folk festival in dc the smithsonian okay. so i got to be friendly with them on this tour and uh, one of the guys that was part of it was a fellow named tony seeger and he's i guess a nephew of pete and mike and oh, okay and that and that and that crew well he was also he was also the um curator and director for folkways and at the time folkways had just been acquired through ralph rensler for um for the smithsonian and so and at the same time that all this was happening, I'd, I'd, I'd gone back to college to try to learn how to basically read and write, you know. And and uh, one of the classes that I took was called career development. And the idea of this class was to take life skills that you'd earned, because uh, I had no education to speak of. I graduated from high school and that was it. And uh, and this career development thing, one of my... One of my um, Assignments was to go interview someone I thought had an interesting job, and to find out what how they got it, what classes they took, how they. So I went down and I and I met with Tony Seeger, who's an ethnomusicologist specializing in Brazilian music. So I, I went down and I ta- was talking to him, and and uh, I was interviewing. I'm not scribbling notes and everything, and and after about a half an hour, he started interviewing me. And 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 uh, and he said, you know, well, and he said, we just acquired this huge collection of of material, and and part of the contract stated that we had to keep the entire collection in print. Well, you can't keep five thousand albums in print if you're selling one or two a year of a yeah. of a specific it's title. It's not feasible. It, no, you yeah. can't do it because you got to do a run of at least five hundred albums. So he said. Why don't you? Why don't we hire you as a contractor and you figure out how to do it? And by golly, I did. I I went to every recording engineer that I'd ever worked with, and they they you know you know how things like that go. He introduced they introduced me to this guy. This guy introduced me to this guy, and before you knew it, I had a job, and it was great because I had a I had a studio with uh, three reel to reel decks. And the way that we decided to do it, that tells how old I am and how long ago this was, is I set up 
uh, 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 five racks of Nakamichi MR1 recorders and with a DAT machine in the top. And so I could do runs, limited runs of cassettes, and you could, and they they're cheap. So I could do I could do five at a time, or I could do I could do twenty at a they're time. Way cheaper than vinyl. Oh or yeah, CDs or, or, or yeah. yeah, and CDs now are cheap, but they yeah. weren't. And, well, cheap. they weren't even introduced yet. But um, so that's how I ended up with the Smithsonian job, and and it was pretty much pure archival work because I was preserving these reel to reels, unfortunately on the DAT. Because that everybody said, well, you know, that's going to be the that's the wave of the future. Uh-uh. No, they were terrible. They, I mean, they just, you know, if if you got a two machines and they the heads were slightly different, you would had nothing but garbage, you know, digital noise. So, but we ended up changing that as time as time went on. But uh, it was that trip to Russia, meeting these people, having this class that got me to interview with Tony. Tony interviewing me. And, and I did that for probably about 10 years until I went over to the National Council for Traditional Arts, where I'm, I did basically the same thing. But those recordings were all gone to the Library of Congress. And by this time, everything was digital. So I would be using DATs, reel-to-reels, and cassettes and, and putting them into a computer and then dividing them into tracks and, you know, and normalizing the signals so that they were relatively close. But not a lot of, not a lot of processing because the library wanted it raw. Yeah. And, and that was better for me, too, because it, that way I could work faster. And I got... And, the, the, the contract you know I guess I did that for about 16 17 years but now that now everything uh, it, that money ran out and the reason that it ran out is because the stuff that's coming in from the field now and since 2006 is all it all comes in native digital and it's not considered an endangered recording yeah. like as long as it's as long as it's backed up yeah. at a couple different places or in the cloud then it is it's 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 already preserved and yeah. safe so i now my my work is more like a special projects and also cataloging you know who's on this what's the name of the song how long is it? You know, that kind of stuff. The metadata stuff. The metadata stuff. Thank you very much. Oh, no problem. That's a good word. I like that <laughs> word. Um, what were some of the most uh, compelling and intriguing uh, pieces of archival material that you were privy to, to hear? Well, I, I would say, it, and as far as the NCTA is concerned, it was pr- it's pro- probably the workshop stages. Because you got these guys that never played music together before, and and they're learning from each other. And Eddie Pennington, the thumbstyle guitar player, is on a lot of that stuff. Your dad's on a lot of that stuff, you know. And and that stuff's real fun to hear the interaction between these musicians. A lot of a lot of Irish music, Cajun music, blues, bluegrass, you know, stuff like that. Your dad's real good. I mean, he. The thing that I I loved about working on your dad's recordings is not only does he play good, but he also understands the background and the history, and what makes this important. And see, I really get off on that stuff, and I and and I try to, and I also try to notate every song because it's it's not for me, it's for future researchers. Yeah. Um. Well, I'm sure listening to those workshop 
recordings in particular, you've probably heard some really amazing stories by some Roots music heroes. I tell you, you one, able to share any of them? I tell you, I tell you one that just broke my heart. It was a it was a workshop of Doc Watson, and he had just lost his wife. And and Joe Wilson, who was the director at the time, you know Joe? No, but I'm I'm familiar. You, you with know him. who yeah. he is? Yeah. Well, he was the director at the time, and he was interviewing Doc. And Doc started talking about just how much she meant to him. And and apparently, when Ralph Rensler discovered Doc in Deep Gap, North Carolina, and and he thought Ralph thought he would be perfect for the New York college audiences. They were getting into people like Mississippi John Hurt and and uh, Frank Huffington and all the real authentic you know players fred price and um so he 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 started talking about his wife driving him to the bus and putting him on a bus and blind guy you know and putting him on a bus and sending him 600 miles or 400 miles into the into a city that was way beyond anybody's comprehension from that part of the world. I mean, can you imagine the culture shock of being being there? But of course, they loved him. They loved him because he was authentic and because he he just he wasn't he wasn't a college educated person that had studied this music. This was his music. Yeah. So that and he the story though he was telling about his wife passing away and what it meant to him. It it really choked you up. I mean, it was it was really strong, and I have a Doc Watson story for Let's you. Let's hear it. I want to tell you this story. Yeah. I don't get to tell this one. <laughs> so we were playing in Withalacoochee, Florida, at this festival, and it was hotter than it was just hot, hot. And uh, and the promoter came to our bus. We had a silver nineteen sixty six Silver Eagle bus, and the promoter comes, you know, knocked on the door. And he said, would you mind if, if Doc sat in your bus for a while could, so he could cool off before his performance? It's so hot and he doesn't have anywhere to go. And we're like, are you kidding me? Yeah. Well, yes, yeah. Very, duh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so Doc got, got, gets on his bus. And we're just exchanging pleasantries, small talk. And I noticed as Doc was running his fingers while he was talking along the ledge of the of the window casement the the metal part that the window was set in and he said uh he said something along the the lines of uh this is silver eagle isn't it and all of a sudden you know everybody got real quiet and said yeah yeah he said what is about a 66 model and i said yeah yeah it's a 66 model and i said i said excuse me doc i don't mean to be disrespectful but how in the world can you tell and he said, well, when, when I was a young man and, and I used to take the Greyhound bus to New York City, he said, I didn't have anything to do except, except you know, use my hands and my, and my ears to learn so that I wasn't bored. And he learned all about these buses. And he knew that bus. Wow. Isn't that crazy? Just, just from feeling yeah. the window still, just from he feeling, could tell. Yeah, he could tell from the casement of the window. Wow. That's wild, isn't that's it? In, that's insane that's unbelievable well you know he was a brilliant guy you know he wired his own house he wired his own house that's what i heard wow do 
you ever feel like the hustle and bustle of life keeps you from accomplishing your goals and staying on track? Have you ever felt exhausted at the end of the day, but yet feel like you've accomplished nothing? Help focus on your goals and stay on track with the Self Journal from Best Self Co. Whether you're starting your own business, a college student, or you're just feeling overwhelmed with day-to-day life, the Self Journal is packed with tools to help you get more done. With features including daily planning, a 13-week roadmap for your goals, inspirational quotes, daily and weekly habit tracking, and a place to record morning and evening gratitude. Best Self Co. offers a line of productivity tools to help you accomplish more. Check out all of their products at bestself.co. Use code BLUEGRASS to save 15% off of your first purchase. That's bestself.co, code BLUEGRASS to save 15% off your first purchase. You you mentioned Ralph Rensler and how Ralph helped discover Doc. He helped put Monroe in front of the folk scene audience, which it sounds like the folk revival really helped reintroduce you to Bluegrass. You let you felt disenfranchised by the way rock was going, and you moved to people you know uh, more like Bob Dylan and John Prine and mm-hmm. folks like that. Right. As a as a student of roots music in general, how did the folk revival help rejuvenate bluegrass? Well, I think it brought a new audience to it. it it's kind of like how did how did Alison Krauss help bluegrass? Well, she helped it by introducing it to a whole new world that may have even never even heard the term bluegrass. And, and I think that's, that's happened in history. I mean, if you look, I think, I think the, first, the first, maybe the first thing like that was a Warren Beatty, or Beatty, how, how, is it Beatty or Beatty? I, Warren went to school with Pete Kuykendall. Really? And, and Pete Kuykendall had all these great bluegrass records, and, and he'd play them from Warren. So when Warren got got the role of in Bonnie and Clyde as Clyde Barrow, he chose. Now, Flat and Scruggs recorded Foggy Mountain Breakdown a whole bunch of times, but he wanted the 1947 version because of the energy of it. That thing is just on freaking fire, and 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 I got goosebumps. Look at this, I got goosebumps just thinking about it. And they used it in the car chase scenes. Well. People never heard, you know, people in the city that are going to see these kind of movies, they never heard a five-string banjo. And they're going, huh, well, that's interesting. And then, and then of course, I mean, Earl's banjo on that original recording of, of uh, Foggy Mountain Breakdown is like a machine gun going off. His spacing of his right-hand notes is just, it's so precise, you know, it, it just, I, and it just, it blew my mind. And I, I mean, I'd listen to the Stanleys and Reno and stuff like that, but I never listened to much Flat and Scruggs, especially the early stuff. And I mean, that just got me excited. And then, and then, you know, the Beverly Hillbillies, where they, they doing the soundtrack for that, got a little boost. Uh, Deliverance, got a little boost. You know, and you think about it, there's been all these little ups and downs and, and Alice and Krauss. And I guess I guess today I would say like the jam band yeah. people are bringing a lot of, you know, it's not exactly my cup of tea, but if it brings people to festivals, then maybe they're going to hear us yeah. or, 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 or the Poe Ramblin' Boys or something like that and go, well, I like that too. That's good too. You know, that that's... That's that's the uh, it, but it's bringing youth in and it's bringing in an outside audience. The seldom seen were were big. I mean they and and I mean they were they were the country gentlemen 
the seldom seen and Cliff Waldron and, and Bill Emerson uh, opened up the material world a lot. I mean, they, they brought in material that wasn't about mountain homes and things like that and there's nothing wrong with those songs I, that's that's what I grew up on that's my actually that's actually kind of my favorite but they, but a lot of people in Washington DC couldn't relate to that a lot of college students in DC that are going to you know the cellar door the birchmere can't relate to little cabin home on the hill when they've grown up in Boston yeah or the and, and you or know Baltimore or, or wherever yeah. and it's you know and it's kind of interesting when you think about that that there's a big festival in, in Boston the Joe Val festival up yeah. there and and the, the audiences that come out there are mostly mostly youngish educated Bostonians and they like the raw stuff you know, and it's and it's and it's kind of interesting, I, and I I don't know why I don't have an explanation for that, but they they do enjoy um, you know Ralph Stanley's and you know the Bill Monroe's and what do you think about bluegrass music appeals? I mean, there's such a misconception in um, in stereotypes that you know bluegrass isn't cool, but it's so cool. What? What uh, about bluegrass music appeals to such a diverse crowd? I, I th- well, part of it is especially people that are that are just getting into it. Maybe they're learning the guitar. Uh, I think it's one of the most accessible musics that there is. And when I say accessible, I mean you could go to a bluegrass festival. You can walk out the store right now. And there, there, there might be somebody with, that doesn't have a lot of skills, but they they have enough skills that they can stand around a campsite and enjoy their friends and play. Some of them get really, really good. I mean, young people that are playing now are it's just they play circles around what I do. You know, I mean, it's they're just so talented. But I, I think I think the initial thing is the accessibility of the music, being able to perform it, and also the accessibility to the artist you know it's kind of like I, I i remember i'll give you an example i went to see Jimi hendrix play one time and and when he, he walked out on stage played great got the limousine and was whisked away and when i went to that mcclure festival i was telling you about a little while ago and it's probably in 74 i was going to get a hot dog and there's bill monroe with his hat his mandolin and his suit getting ready to go to the stage getting a hot dog just like me and i thought this is awesome you know i, I didn't bother him but i could have you know i mean I, I i i had too much respect to go and say what are you putting on your hot dog yeah. but but at the same time i could have you know it's not like it's not like i couldn't have spoken to him hey god that was that was really something another funny story about that festival i still remember all this stuff i haven't thought about this stuff in years another thing he, bill introduces the the whole band you know the bluegrass boys in the state they're from and and it, and uh and some young hippie guy sitting in, in the front row goes who are you and bill goes you know who I am. Where'd you get a silly question like that? <laughs> it just tickled me. And just, but he had a smile on his face. He wasn't being mean. He yeah. was just being Bill Monroe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now you're, you're telling stories. You got to tell me some of your best James King stories. You and I both are diehard James King fans. Yeah. 
and uh, we we lost All him right. just a few years ago. But you got you got to, some of the. I, I, yeah. I got I got I got one that's not dirty. You okay. like this one? <laughs> uh, the, uh, he, uh, you know, uh, there's one of the string companies that, that a lot of bluegrass artists use are uh, are uh, Diodario. And at the end of the string, uh, uh, for you for you folks that might not play guitar, at the end of the string, there's a little ball that you stick down in the guitar, and that holds it. The guitar holds the string in place. Each one has a different color, and so it's it's easy not to get mixed up. And so James is on stage, and and he and he broke a G string. Uh, 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 the third string in, and and James said, "Anybody got back there? Got a guitar string?" And someone backstage says, "says Yeah, which one? The green one." <laughs> <laughs> wasn't the G string? It wasn't the third string. It was the green it one. It was the green one. <laughs> what about James King made him one of a kind in this music? Well, I I I think James was one of the most real people. That I that I've ever met, he had problems. He had he had his demons, and nearly everybody knows about it. But when James sang, he told the truth. And I have seen him, and I actually seen him in a recording studio. And your dad will back me up on this too. Is is he was singing um, a few more years? It was on I think the third Longview record. And it took us an hour and a half to get through his vocal because he kept breaking down in tears. And it was just, it just don't get no realer than that. No. And, and if somebody, here's, how, here's, here's what I look for in a singer. If a singer can sing a song and, and it doesn't have to have a lot of acrobats in it. It's not super high, super low, none of that. But if he, if he tells his story and I believe it, mm-hmm. that's, that's a good singer to me. And there's no more believable singer than James King. Absolutely not. And I, I, I just don't, I don't, don't see him being replaced. In, well, the only thing, Junior Sisk is also a real great storyteller type singer. In that same vein. Yeah. Uh huh. I mean, I mean, he can and uh, and Danny Paisley. See, I, I tend to lean toward that kind of yeah. singing. You mentioned earlier how um, you related the hardcore hit you over the head bluegrass with almost like a rock and roll attitude. Could you expound on that? Yeah, a little bit. Um, I, I, when I, when I, like, it, it, one of my favorites when I was in high school was Johnny Winter. I, he just, he was a Texas guitar slinger guy, long white hair, albino guy. I mean, he, first of all, he looked really cool. He had this really cool look. And, and when I heard him sing, I thought, well, there's not that much difference between him and Hank Williams. He's it's just it's just pouring your heart out, and and I I guess that's I guess the point that I was trying to make is it's is heartfelt music is is uh, it's hard to find where it's not like somebody saying hey listen watch this watch what I can do. It's not that. It's the other thing. It's that. It's that special thing, where it's just believable, and you know they. You know they mean it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, before we go, you mentioned that you like deep catalog stuff, and you're a Stanley Brothers nut. Mm-hmm. If uh, one of our listeners is looking. 
for a Stanley Brothers song they probably haven't heard before that is just rank with stank. That's just going to just crawl up inside of them and make them want to jump off a bridge. Which one should they find? Well, one I'm thinking of right off the top of my head, because I, I just found this not long ago, is, is, is a song called uh, Say You'll Take Me Back. And it was a well. I'm going to give you a couple. Okay. I, I yeah. Can, I yeah. can't quit with one. Yeah. And one. And this one. They're, Stanley Brothers songs are like Pringles. You know, you can't have just yeah, one. There you go. <laughs> or well, tater chips, like tater chips. That's it. There's a song called "Say You'll Take Me Back," and they recorded it for Mercury, and they recorded it kind of up up tempo. But there's a version like from 1956 on one of these Copper Creek records. You can actually find it on YouTube. So it's, it's, it's not hard to find. And it's really slow. And it, it, just, it just raised the hair up on your arms. Another one is the Mercury outtake of, of uh, On a Lonesome Night. You've heard On a Lonesome Night. Because yeah. they re-recorded on King, but they left off a verse. Oh, really? Yeah. And let's see. I'm trying to think of how it goes. Uh, uh, and now I'm on my way back home. Sweetheart, will you still care? I promise never to leave your side. Your love I'll always share. And I don't think they recorded that. And I don't know why unless the song was too long. Yeah. And but the way they did it is they left out of they left out a course and then put that in its place and then did another course. Oh, okay. Then and yeah, okay. Yeah, so the it, so it's not quite as long, but oh boy, that verse is just so good. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh well thank you so much dudley i appreciate it daniel it's always a pleasure to chat with you well thank you the honor is always mine so you've heard us talk about samson's hair care's hair pomade with its all-day hold and signature smell now they have something for the other hair on your face your beard fellas i don't know about you but i love sporting a beard it makes me feel so manly and let's face it the ladies love it however what they don't love is a beard that's unkempt and out of control and when you're scratching all day like a dog that's where samson's hair care can help you they have a brand new beard balm and beard oil to help you regain control of your beard. The beard oil is all about stopping irritation. It makes the beard softer and moisturizes the skin underneath so you're not scratching all day. They also have their beard balm, which helps you regain control of your beard, help it lay the way it's supposed to so you don't have them wiry hairs sticking out, and it makes your beard softer as well. They have a brand new beard balm and beard oil at samsonshaircare.com, and they know that bluegrassers need to look sharp so that's why if you use code bluegrass you'll save 10 percent off whether you want the beard oil the beard balm the uh, samson's hair care pomade or all three check it out at samsonshaircare.com use code bluegrass to save 10 percent off it's all at samsonshaircare.com code bluegrass Episode three on the second season of the Walls of Time Bluegrass podcast. It was a real treat to sit down with one of my favorite uh, performers in bluegrass music, Dudley Connell. He's one of your favorites. That's such a coincidence. He's one of mine, too, because who doesn't like the voice of Dudley and all the great lineups he's been with over the years, included the Johnson Mountain Boys, which is one of my favorite all-time bands. I think that uh, as far as traditional bluegrass goes they helped there was a decade there that um where 
bluegrass wasn't trending as much as it is these days. And I feel like they're one of the bands that kept the traditional style and just the genre in general going strong. Um, I can't wait to go make this playlist uh, for this episode because I just love going back and listening to all those great Johnson Mountain Boys uh, style. They had that traditional sound, but, you know, the attack and the, their vocals, um, uh, especially Dudley's uh, stylized lead vocal approach, gave it a bit of a modern sound, which I think uh, was what drew new audiences to Bluegrass via the Johnson Mountain Boys. To me, the word that always describes Dudley, especially on stage, is charisma. You can hear it in this interview, but on stage and on record, Dudley's charisma is so unique. He may be one of the most charismatic bluegrass singers I've ever heard. When you listen to a live recording of the Johnson Mountain Boys, like live at the old schoolhouse when he does Dream of a Miner's Child, or with Body and Soul, or even on you know some of his great records with the scene when he does Nadine or 110 in the Shade that he borrowed from John Fogarty. No matter where the song comes from, Dudley's always great at making it his own and drawing a listener from any background in to pay attention to what he's doing. Yeah, when he sings, it almost you, almost, you can almost envision the smile on his face when he's singing, uh, unless it's just a really sad song, but uh, it just, it's sort of a... It's almost like he's winking at us all. You know, yeah. He's having just a great time. You can hear it when, you, when you're interviewing him today. He's just so upbeat and so positive. And, uh, yeah, it carries through the music that he's uh, and the gr- different groups that he's chosen to play with over the years. Uh, Johnson Mountain Boys, of course. Longview. You know that band, Longview? Oh, yeah. I'm a huge Longview <laughs> fan, of course. You know, my dad played the banjo for the first three records. I've got, a, I've got a picture of Longview at my desk, actually, but that's how I became acquainted with Dudley uh, on a personal level. Of course, I was just a kid, but he and Sally were always so sweet and so kind, and I love Dudley singing on those Longview records, too, like uh, uh, Southern Moon. He just milks it on that first album. And uh, Dudley's always been one of my favorites. You, you, and you talk about, you know, bringing uh, in a shot of adrenaline into traditional bluegrass fans. He did that not once but twice with the Johnson Mountain Boys and then in the 90s as well with Longview. Uh, but when you hear his full story, I'm sure that when he first joined up with the Seldom Scene, a lot of people were probably curious on how is this going to work because Dudley's so traditional. But when you hear his complete story and hear about how he loves all, all sorts of music, including Bob Dylan and John Prine right next to the Stanley Brothers Reno and Smiley it's a perfect fit to have him with the scene that's uh, that's been his home for a little over 20 years now yeah and what a great addition to that you know so many powerful uh, players and singers have been a part of the legendary seldom scene and for Dudley to be a part of that I really don't know who else but someone on his level could have come in and, and filled the shoes of uh, Starling and uh, Duffy, some of those uh, just major legendary guys, and uh, Dudley does it so well, and it's so great to hear him. You know, when he first started 20 years ago, all the way till when you hear the the band perform now, it just never gets old. Fantastic uh, role for Dudley. One of the things that's always fascinated me about Dudley is his work. His day job, I think, is so interesting as well. Working for the Smithsonian for a while, and then for the National Council of Traditional Arts on archiving historic roots music recordings. What's awesome, too, is uh, Dudley's wife, Sally, who is such a sweetheart, she works for the Smithsonian as well. She works for the 
Smithsonian of natural history. She was the bug expert for a long time. There's all kinds of old videos of her on Letterman, bringing some of the cool insects from the Natural History Museum on late night. And uh, she works uh, with some of the rotating exhibits now. But there's one of the coolest couples in bluegrass, and she's a great singer. And uh, they've always been so kind and so much fun to visit with. And I was glad to get to hang out with Dudley backstage at Sam Jam. Uh, when you record an interview with Dudley in an old camper uh, backstage at a festival, that's about as bluegrass as it gets. That must be as bluegrass as it gets. Dudley is as bluegrass as it gets. I'm so glad we could learn about uh, what he's done and preserving uh, the history and historic recording. So if you see him out and about uh, festival or performance where the scene are playing, uh, thank him. Thank him for what he's done for bluegrass. Thank him what, what he's done for roots music and uh, preserving uh, both sides of those things. Yeah, Dudley is one of those figures that really embodies the balance of tradition and innovation within bluegrass music, which that dichotomy you hear me talk about a lot is something that makes our music so unique is that balance of tradition and innovation. And he's one of those pivotal figures that uh, really walks that line so well and is as equally traditional as he is innovative. And it's one thing that makes him so compelling and so much fun to have on the Walls of Time Bluegrass podcast. If you love the podcast, be sure to go to our website, wallsoftimepodcast.com. Check out our new shirts. They're super cool. And also listen and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platforms. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, uh, Google Podcasts, and more. Yep, and we're on social media, Facebook at Walls of Time Podcast, and Instagram, Walls of Time Podcast, Twitter, Walls of Time Pod. Uh, make comments, send us messages, like pictures, go listen to playlists. We'll have it all for this episode with Mr. Dudley Connell. Next week, we're visiting with some bluegrass royalty, Johnny Warren. His dad is Paul Warren of the Bluegrass Music Hall of Fame, made music with Flatten Scruggs and the Foggy Mountain Boys on so many of their classic records. And Johnny Warren keeps that tradition alive as a member of the Earls of Leicester. So I have a ton of fun sitting down with Johnny. And did you know, Ty, that Johnny is also a golf professional? I did not know this prior to listening to the interview, but uh, yeah, his uh, journey in sports is interesting and how they uh, interweave with uh, his career in music is great. You can learn all about it next time on the Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast. Thanks for listening. Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast is produced by Ty Gilpin and Daniel Mullins, edited by Daniel Mullins, and is a production of Blue Poncho Media. Visit wallsoftimepodcast.com for more information.